Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Alton Estates spared demolition, but more than 100 other London estates face regeneration. Speculation grows over the Greenbelt's future under Liz Truss. Campaigners call for Queen Elizabeth Hall's listing as a mark of respect. And Open City reveals the winners of this year's Stewardship Awards. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Julian Robinson. Julian is Director of Estates at the London School of Economics and winner of this year's Open City Irene Barclay Prize. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Merlin. Controversial plans to partially demolish Roehampton's acclaimed LCC Architects Design Alton Estate have been paused. The move will allow local authority Wandsworth Council to review the 1959 estate's revamp and explore alternative approaches which could offer more affordable housing. The story has been picked up by a number of local London news sites, including London News Online, Wandsworth Times and My London. The latter also published an eye-opening, comprehensive list of 122 housing estates across London, all threatened with demolition, with the potential for thousands of homes being flattened. Wandsworth Council's new Labour administration said the previously proposed regeneration plans for the Alton Estate next to Richmond Park involving partial demolition and rebuild were, quote, simply not enough when it came to affordable housing. The report from the Council's Housing Committee advises the local authority to review other options to improve the lives of people currently living in the area rather than pursuing a partner to deliver the current large-scale redevelopment plans. The scheme in question, which was greenlit by London Mayor Sadiq Khan in January, proposed the demolition of 288 homes, which were to be replaced with 1,108 homes, 260 of which uh, will be affordable. Previous guest of the show and Labour councillor Ivan Dickerden said, quote, The ones of the Labour group has always been worried about the nature of the proposed regeneration plans, particularly around the proportion of council housing when compared to private housing in the scheme. Only 18.6% on council rents out of more than 1,000 new homes. We are absolutely committed to investing and improving the estate, but we're going to review the proposed outcomes for this investment and explore the options available to us. We're therefore ending the current procurement on the original master plan. The report concludes that nothing is ruled in or out for the estate at this stage. The council's executive committee will decide on the recommendations later this month. So Julian, what can you tell us about the Alton estate? Uh, Why is it such an important piece of London's architectural history, but also what makes London such a contemporary great city? 
Well, I think uh, the first thing to say is I visited it about eight years ago when I attended a conference at Roehampton University. And I stayed in uh, some student residences, which uh, unfortunately overlooked the back of one of the blocks, which at that time was showing signs of neglect. And to be honest, it uh, looked a bit third world. I mean, there literally were burnt out cars, stray dogs and piles of rubbish. Uh, and really, it just had had no um, sort of tender loving care from what I could see. Um, I think if it had been cared for, it would have been a very smart neighbourhood. From an architectural point of view, um, and indeed a planning point of view, I think it's, it is one of the largest uh, set-piece public housing projects within the UK. And it's got low, medium and high-rise uh, elements. Um, it is modernist. Um, it's got sort of Scandi and Corbusian sort of uh, influences. Uh, but I also like the, the aim of the architects who were London County Council in trying to create a sort of a, a, a utopian community. Uh, and there's one, uh, one of the blocks has even got allotments outside the front of it, which is dear to my heart because I've got an allotment and I know how important they are. I actually think uh, with sort of proper estate management, maintenance and political will, this could have been a shining example of post-war social housing. And I think it still can be, uh, as I say, if the political will is there. So plans to demolish around 288 of these homes uh, were approved by Wandsworth's former council and then by the Mayor of London as well. Um, this latest U-turn has created some shockwaves. It's caught a lot of people's attention. Um, why is it such a big deal? Well, I think there are three things to note here. Um, firstly, that listed structures of architectural and social significance should be cherished and receive appropriate investment and stewardship. Secondly, that the, the go-to demolition agenda is actually bad for the planet and needs a complete rethink. And thirdly, uh, the days of public sector getting shortchanged at the expense of private shareholders are on borrowed time. And this seriously needs to be looked at. We cannot be in a situation where we knock down uh, public housing and then provide less in its place. This, this is madness in this day and age, particularly with the housing crisis. And it, just interesting, quickly, about 10 years ago, this kind of approach was kind of commonplace and there wasn't so much resistance to it. There wasn't so much of a, an awareness, even that this was necessarily controversial. Why, why have things changed so much in the, in the past decade? 10 years ago, uh, money was uh, tight. Um, and I sort of liken it to the sort of big splurge we had on PFI uh, with hospitals and schools. Uh, there was no considered to be no alternative, and so we all went down that route, and we're now paying for it dearly in the long term. And I think, you know, councils desperate to try and get estate regeneration went down this route, but really uh, were not getting a good deal. Uh, and basically, the private sector have done very well out of it. And I'm not saying they shouldn't. Oh, clearly, should make a profit out of it, but I think the profits have been excessive. And then some people, they might look at an estate regeneration, you know, typically estate regenerations, they do change the kind of social composition of an area. And some people might say that's a good thing, right? Why are they right? Or is, is something being lost? No, I think they are right. And I don't think we, you know, we don't want monolithic communities of one particular sort of social class. Um, you know, the thing that makes London as interesting as it is, is literally cheek by jowl. You've got some uh, maybe sort of Georgian houses, uh, you know, with bankers living in them. And then sort of next door, there could be a council estate. And I think that's really important, um, rather than, as I say, that just having these sort of monolithic uh, type communities. What you've got to do, though, is not displace 
the existing community, make sure that they are sort of uh, basically, uh, you know, wrapped uh, and looked after to stay there. Um, and you look at the sort of tenure uh, sort of details. So, uh, as I say, right to buy, I think, has been a disaster for that. Um, and what you have is basically people just moving out and then you again getting a monolithic community, but all sort of, uh, you know, uh, city professionals and bankers. And regular listeners to the show uh, will be very familiar with us often discussing the relative be- benefits of retaining buildings compared to demolishing them. Um, now, last month, we were discussing the outcome of a very high-profile recent LSE competition um, for the revamp uh, of a building on the, on the main campus in Aldwych. Uh, and it's, uh, we'll see one of the existing buildings improved and adapted to, to create amazing new facilities for, for the university. Julian, why are approaches like these, uh, where demolition is downscaled, um, so so important right now? Well, look, the the, the climate emergency is real um, and will be um, economically and socially uh, catastrophic. Uh, one of our economics professors um, is Lord Stern, and he wrote the Stern Report for Gordon Brown when he was Prime Minister. And, and what he said was actually scarily uh, prescient uh, and is coming to pass. But actually, he admits that now, given what he knows, he probably understated the impacts. So public bodies like um, LSE have an important role in leading the agenda. And I think it was very important that we put our money where our mouth was. Um, I think, actually, the debate shifted whilst the design competition was underway. Um, Whereas we were sort of neutral uh, about new build build versus demolition at the start um, of the competition, by the end... Uh, we really were convinced that we had to be in the vanguard of making this change. And then just to link it back to the estate regenerations, obviously we all know that local authorities are under enormous pressure, that resources and staffing is very stretched. LSE is sort of like elite university and um, you're able to adapt and make sort of canny moves around urban stewardship and be able to embrace and change your approaches. What's it going to take for local authorities uh, to sort of catch up? Because um, yeah, it, it seems like change needs to happen quite quickly. Yeah, I mean, I would actually set up a central government task force uh, with um, economists, with housing specialists, uh, with architects to go and review all of these main estate regeneration programmes um, to actually look at the embodied carbon, to look at the social impact, to look at the number of social uh, housing units being produced uh, and, and almost having a score sheet on them. Because uh, it may be that in some instances, yes, a wholesale demolition would be appropriate. But I would say that's probably in sort of very few uh, examples, I would say that would happen. As Liz Trust and her cabinet settle into their new parliamentary seat, speculation grows over what may be in store for London's Green Belt. This week, hyper-local news blog Inside Croydon published an opinion piece speculating that changes to the Department of Leveling Up and Housing could signal a change in attitudes to outer London areas protected from development. Simon Clark, the newly appointed Leveling Up Housing and Community Secretary, published a paper back in 2018 calling for the government to, quote, unlock Greenbelt land within a half-mile radius of train stations to construct 1.5 million new houses. Truss herself has supported similar development in the past. When she launched her first Tory leadership campaign back in 2019, she pledged to build one million new homes on the protected Greenbelt. 
This coincides with the government's annual statistics published this week, which shows a net 1.5% increase in greenbelt land in England, bringing the total area of development-protected land to 12.6% across the country. In London specifically, the value is much higher, with the greenbelt extending over 22% of the region's total area. So, Julian, the green belt is supposed to prevent the unrestricted sprawl of large urban areas and protect against encroachment on neighbouring countryside. Um, what does London's green belt currently actually look like, and what might the development of that green belt mean for London? From what I can see, uh, London's green belt is a bit of a mess. Um, in some areas, it's very green, and others, it's nondescript, uh, and it almost seems like an excuse to prevent uh, development. Um, I'm very much in favour of building higher densities next to transport hubs, um, even if they are technically in the green belt. Um, my problem is that high-rise, high-density is not suitable for every family type. Uh, and that's, I, I think, the, the big challenge is how we can get sort of, you know, a proper mix of housing uh, without sort of having to sort of like sprawl over uh, the rest of the green belt. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting place that it seems like it kind of there's a green belt that exists in people's imaginations and then there's a green belt that exists in reality. And the one in my imagination is a kind of Arcadian recreational zone, but the reality is often uh, rugby pitches with private no entry golf courses. Um, so certainly it's it's an area that is quite contested, uh, both for people in, in in London and out of London. Um, why has it become such a, an explosive argument about what the future of the green belt could be? Um, you know, why and why is that issue of developing on it so contentious? Well, look, um, I mean, the green belt is a planning success in so much as it's prevented urban sprawl. Um, it has provided valuable amenity space close to cities, um, and it has uh, forced, uh, I think, the better and more intensive use of existing sites uh, within the city. Um, on the downside, uh, I think well, it's increased property values um, adjacent to uh, the green belt. Um, it has uh, entrenched uh, nimbyism, and I think to some extent has restricted the supply of new homes. Um, however, I'm, I'm always wary when sort of right-wing organisations like the Adam Smith Institute or the Institute for Economic Affairs champion such causes. Uh, you know, will this just be a way of volume house builds making? easier and greater profits and fundamentally not changing the existing housing inequalities we have at the moment and you know i would only sort of you know release the green belt if i knew that it was going to address that major problem yeah it's very interesting in that because it has been such a successful policy for such a long time uh, but obviously property and development in london is such a big deal it rather makes you think that that ample and vast amount of land, you know, who owns it and what kind of uh, what kind of vision, long-term vision might someone have or some kind of hopes they might have for it. You know, there might be a whole hypothetical master plan for various fields all around um, various train stations in the green belt that have just never seen uh, the light of day, ready to roll for that one moment when suddenly it's permitted. Um, perhaps what would be best is if there was a kind of environmentally sensitive, socially uh, uh, advantageous master plan for the the outer London area, which could develop it in a way that's sustainable and equitable. Um, the thing is, is that that doesn't exist. But also, the debate where something like that might exist has never happened. Um, why is it that we never really seem to be able to get to a place where an intelligent conversation is had about the green belt? I think there's a, as you've said, there's a lot of uh, myth 
about it that it, it's seen as this sort of uh, you know bucolic uh, sort of rural um, sort of ideal, um, and in many cases um, it's not. Um, and let's also be honest that um, probably, particularly with his current government, a lot of their voters live adjacent or within the green belt. And so it's not in their interest to sort of challenge that status quo. So uh, we're discussing Simon Clark's potential approach uh, to the green belt. Now, Simon Clark is the fourth levelling up secretary to date this year. Um, we had Robert Jenrick, who was sacked by Boris Johnson. Michael Gove was also sacked by Boris Johnson. And then Greg Clark. Uh, so now it's Simon Clark in the role. Um, why is it that um, this position as the levelling up secretary is apparently so difficult to keep filled? To also, why is it so difficult for whoever's in this position to then have some kind of meaningful impact on our housing crisis? Because yeah, we've been reviewing things like planning reform, every, all kinds of policies on the show, and none of it's happened yet. Well, I think the big question is whether it is a meaningful position in the first place. I mean, levelling up for whom? What does it actually mean rather than going beyond a vacuous soundbite. Um, I mean, I've been quite shocked by the, the blatant uh, distribution bias towards sort of Tory voting areas. Uh, it really doesn't seem to be much more than a device to um, assist the, the current government. I think until there is a serious attempt to uh, redistribute wealth, uh, and I'm going to make a plug for uh, Gary's economics. Um, he's a, an ex student, millionaire trader, um, who sort of threw in the towel and now is a campaigner for a wealth tax. And, you know, until that happens, levelling up is meaningless. Following the death of Queen Elizabeth II, which gripped headlines for the past fortnight, campaigners have urged ministers to reconsider listing the Queen Elizabeth Hall as a mark of respect for the late monarch. This was reported by the AJ, which has previously chronicled the many and varied attempts to redevelop the LCC-designed Southbank Centre over the years. The 20th Century Society called for the listing of the 1967 events venue on London's South Bank, along with its 1968 neighbour, the Hayward Gallery, both of which were designed by a LCC Architects team led by the esteemed Norman Engelback. Back in 2020, the building was issued with a Certificate of Immunity from Listing by former Culture Secretary Nicky Morgan. However, as queues of mourners piled past them last week, queuing for Westminster Hall, campaigners have called for a rethink. The 20th Century Society's statement read, quote, The South Bank is a singular achievement of the post-war age, with the Queen Elizabeth Hall and Hayward Gallery an integral part of the most important complex of modernist buildings in the country. At this moment of national reflection, the Society believes that belatedly recognising and listing them would be a fitting mark of respect. The Heritage Body described the two prominent buildings as adventurous compositions designed in deliberate contrast to the smooth, almost classical modernism of the neighbouring Royal Festival Hall. A £28 million restoration of the Hayward Gallery, Queen Elizabeth Hall and Purcell Room at the South Bank Centre, designed by Field & Clegg Bradley Studios, was completed five years ago after plans for significant new build additions on the site were abandoned. Um, so, Julian, you're based at LSE, obviously just across the river. Um, what's the Queen Elizabeth Hall and Hayward Gallery buildings like? Uh, are you a fan of these prominent landmarks on the River Thames? On balance, yes, um, but the, the Queen Elizabeth Hall, I think, is one of the more sort of challenging brutalist uh, structures in London. Um, even though I'm a fan of brutalism, and one can't really, I think, call it beautiful or particularly sculptural, unlike, say, the, the National Theatre. And unlike the Hayward Gallery, um, I think it seems to sort of lack finesse and poise. 
Um, I find the Queen Elizabeth Hall rather lumpen, um, and it's not really helped by the exterior state of the concrete, which is showing signs of degradation and staining. Um, and what's that yellow stair all about? It's just really weird, I think. Um, but, um, you know, the spaces inside, um, you know, obviously, obviously I've been inside for concerts and, and gigs, uh, I think work really well. Uh, and, of course, the, the skateboard park is an alternative London icon, which should be uh, preserved and listed, I feel. Um, so, as I say, on, on balance, yes, we should keep it, but it, I think some reimagining is needed. Yes, yeah, it certainly has evolved in the past decade with, uh, like you say, the yellow staircase and then the roof garden, which sort of references the original architectural plans that it would be a kind of living landscape with pop-up markets and stalls and, and so on and so forth. And, and what's interesting is if we think back, so we had um, big redevelopment plans by Field and Clegg Bradley. They would have put in a whole building next to the Waterloo Bridge, a kind of sky room uh, above it coming up through the courtyard. Before that, uh, Richard Rogers had a proposal to put a giant uh, glazed tent over the thing. Um, and there's probably been a few other redevelopment attempts in, in, in the years gone by. Um, why is it that these two buildings, uh, but also other brutalist buildings like them around the country, um, have proven to be quite contentious? You know, why have there been um, a lot of people maligning them, but then also from the other side, a lot of people really celebrating them? Why are they such a battleground? Again, I think it goes back to our history. I mean, you know, we all have in our mind's eye a view on what architecture should be. And I think modernism, brutalism uh, challenges that. And it's not to everyone's taste. And you say there have been some very bad uh, brutalist buildings uh, built very badly and actually designed very badly. Um, but overall, the uh, central thesis of sort of modern modernism, I think, is very positive. And, in, and, in, and you can uh, repurpose and reuse um, old uh, structures. Uh, and I'm thinking of like, you know, Preston Bus Garage, which, you know, beautifully sculptural building that was going to be demolished and now has been saved. And I think quite rightly so, because this, these are historic buildings and part of the story of the UK and its built environment. What do you think about the 20th century society's reasoning behind this listing plea? Because obviously they've campaigned to have these buildings listed for a very long time. And it is somewhat, you know, many people say it's quite astonishing that they're not listed considering how historic they are. Um, now, is making this argument that they should happen now, is that a kind of fitting monument to the Queen? Um, or is it a bit tenuous to say listing now should happen as a kind of mark of respect to the late monarch? I mean, look, you, you, you can't fault them for having a go. But, you know, it was conceived, designed and built in the Elizabethan age. Uh, and so there is obviously a, a link there. And that's the thing. We, uh, with Open City, we generated a list of 122 buildings opened by the Queen in London. And when you look closely at it, um, the Queen opened Lloyds of London by Richard Rogers. The Queen opened the National Theatre by Dennis Lasden. She also opened the Royal College of Physicians uh, by Dennis Lasden. I mean, there's a lot of architectural historians who are going to be extremely env envious of this, like a real kind of uh, track record of these buildings. Um, you know, is, could you say that... Uh, the queen uh, had a kind of role in the in brutalism itself was she the queen of brutalism yeah because she represented that particular age um in britain and that was when sort of modernism was at its height um she's that been through postmodernism and hopefully we've come out the the other side so uh yeah i mean she's had an amazing reign because she's been there for 70 70 years and seen amazing change across the whole land 
Six outstanding examples of long-term, low-carbon urbanism have been unveiled as winners of the 2022 Open City Stewardship Awards. The winning projects across six urban stewardship categories are London School of Economics, Dalston Curve Garden, Bartlett School of Architecture, UEA Enterprise Centre, Capital and Counties at Covent Garden and Clitterhouse Farm. The awards celebrate the very best examples of strategic and long-term care of the built environment and is the only built environment prize to honour holistic, ecologically and socially sustainable long-term architecture and city-making strategies. Open City Chief Executive Phineas Harper said, quote, The Open City Stewardship Awards aim to shift the conversation about successful urbanism and design towards a vital discussion which values the ongoing care of places and communities. We hope to make great maintenance and estate management as sexy and as venerated as the best architectural masterpieces. Our guest this week, Julian Robinson, Director of Estates at the London School of Economics, won the overall Irene Barclay Prize for all-round strength across many of the award categories. The prize is named after the noted campaigner for social housing and the first woman to qualify in England as a chartered surveyor in 1922. Born in 1894, Barclay's long-standing contribution to neighbourhoods across London, including Somerstown, the Isle of Dogs and Kensington, made her a true steward of the city. The LSE's Aldwych campus was praised by judges for creating an exemplar, sustainable university campus. The judges said, quote, Rather than securitising access and outsourcing contracts as is common elsewhere, LSE has bravely brought cleaning house in staff and opened up generous public spaces within its new buildings. As a client, LSE has commissioned some outstanding contemporary architecture, but is the university's long-term vision, deep care and custodianship of its historic neighbourhood and thriving community that makes it a true steward of the city. Um, so, Julian, what do you make of this year's Stewardship Awards winning projects? Are there any particular favourites for you in the list? Yeah, I've got a couple, actually. The, the first one is Capital One Counties uh, at Covent Garden. It's literally across the road from the LSE. Uh, and we always looked over to them to see how they are doing. Uh, the stewardship of that estate, I think, uh, has really turned that round. Uh, it now feels cohesive. I think the uh, care and maintenance of the whole space has been incredible, uh, particularly with the sort of planting. And also, it, it goes down to the leadership of that particular, uh, or if you like, the estate management of that particular area uh, and the individuals concerned. Uh, and to me, that was a worthy winner of the award. On the completely sort of other end of the scale, um, you've got uh, Dawson Curve. And... Uh, that was actually really inspiring. Uh, they raised money during COVID to convert uh, sort of an old sort of railway land into a sort of community garden. Uh, they've had 160,000 visitors. Uh, and the people that came and presented um, that particular scheme were so sort of passionate in their advocacy, uh, which was an inspiring, I think, for sort of social stewardship of these type of spaces. And so the LSE has won the Irene Barclay Prize for the best overall project. Um, what does urban stewardship mean to you in your day-to-day -day work? And um, why is it so important and something that other people should uh, rival and emulate? Yeah, well, I particularly uh, welcome these awards because you probably know Merlin. I mean, LSE wins lots of awards for sort of architecture. Uh, but look, it's just not all about buildings. Of course, I want to win those awards, but 
actually then what do you do with them? How do you use those buildings? What is their social purpose? What is their place in the city? Uh, and so what we've been trying to do at LSE is actually stitch those together and make a new piece of city that is publicly accessible and actually feels part of London rather than a campus. So we don't call it a campus, we call it a quarter because we actually want and want to encourage people to sort of meander and walk through and sort of get a bit of the LSE. And the way you do that is not just by great buildings and great public realm, but also having great staff. So my maintenance staff, my porters, my security staff, my cleaning staff, they are all ambassadors for the LSE and for the university quarter. And without them and their approach to student staff, members of the public, and, and how they welcome those, it wouldn't be as successful as it is. We're now on to the culture section. Um, we have some very, very uh, exciting things coming up. Open City has created a film about the new City Hall. Uh, this is the new base uh, for the London Assembly and the London Mayor over in the Royal Docks in the former Crystal Building. Uh, it's been uh, fitted out by Architecture Zero Zero and turned into an extraordinary new City Hall for everyone in London. Uh, so we've created a, a film about this new building and also an exhibition uh, with a free map, a printed tour uh, of the area around the City Hall uh, that you can take and use to explore the area. The tour is actually written by Danny Dankwa, who was a participant in Open City's Golden Key Academy tour guiding training course, uh, and he's a, he's a local uh, from the Royal Docks area. Uh, so this exhibition we will be on at City Hall from the 22nd to the 29th of September, uh, open Monday to Thursday uh, uh, between 8.30 and 6pm, and on Friday between 8.30 and 5.30. Uh, so that's a, a thing that's happening. And then also, what's really, really exciting, next week we have the next in our Accelerate Debates. Uh, it's called Craft Work. It's happening on Thursday, the 29th of September, between 7 and 9.30 at Rich Mix in Shoreditch. Um, so for this Accelerate Debate, we'll be joined by a panel of speakers who will discuss whether craft is procrastination or the process we need in an era of global heating and rising inequality. Um, each will bring to the stage one crafted item they believe that humanity can't do without, and will have to defend it as other speakers mercilessly argue for it being wiped from history. Uh, everyone in the audience will be the people who get to decide which item is saved. We have a kind of voting system. Uh, Julian, thanks for being on the show. It's been an immense pleasure. Uh, we hope you can join us again sometime in the future. And um, where can listeners go to stay up to speed on all of the amazing things you're doing? Is there a social media handle or a website where listeners should go? Yeah, I, th I think probably the, the LSE website and just go to the Estates Division page and we've got all of the uh, news about the projects that we're currently undertaking, including our road to Net Zero. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for being on this week's show. It's been fun. Thanks. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. 
Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.